Testing. Can you hear me now? Okay. Okay. Okay, I thought this was going to be easy. Okay. This is the uh, next to last Sunday in this teaching quarter. And for this um, quarter, um, David Palman's been leading us through a discussion of the book of James. And um, he asked me to pitch hit for him today. Uh, If I remember correctly, we were within two or three verses of the end of chapter 4 last week. And I told him I was going to touch on those four verses kind of as an integral part of this lesson. And then save chapter 5 for him to finish up his study. Because I wanted to take a little bit uh, different approach. And um, uh, considered when I was preparing this lesson, I, I considered this to be a, a bridge to get us from where David has been and the kind of drill down discussion that he's had over the last several weeks uh, to um, him finishing up next week. hope it's uh, uh, worthwhile to you. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get a little bit off on a tangent here. Now, I look around and I can see i got a lot of mathematical minds, but to remind you just what a tangent is, are you listening? A tangent is a trigonometric function that, for an acute angle, is the ratio between the leg opposite to the angle when it is considered part of a right triangle and the leg adjacent. Did you get that, Dale? Okay, Dale's got that. However, my Webster's Dictionary defines um, tangent in another way. As a non-mathematical definition, it's an abrupt change of course, a digression. Now, I look around and uh, I don't see the elders. Where are the elders today? I feel footloose and fancy free there, right? Okay, I see one of them back there, but Bobby, uh, he's always alert, but he's very peaceful. Uh, and he knows that this speaker is not going to digress, uh, digress too far from what James has to say or any other writer. But I will tell you that the definition in Webster about this, this second uh, definition, the example they give is the speaker went off on a tangent. So this speaker is going a little off on a tangent. Now, I know we've been studying about James. And uh, we've drilled down into James. Um, and all of us that have studied James at any length at all would recognize, I believe, that James really doesn't touch directly on the law. That is the law of Moses. Now, you might, in some particular place, you might say that that's an indirect thought, at least, about the law of Moses. But that's really not his purpose. But I want to use the law of Moses as sort of a backdrop in this off-the-tangent, off-on-a-tangent discussion. Uh, And we're going to consider what James did write. But we're going to start somewhere else. We're going to kind of weave around. So you're going to have to follow me a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure this is a a path that uh, makes sense, but it made sense to me. Because as I, I knew I was going to pitch it for David 10 days or so ago, and I was doing some reading in the Bible, and, and uh, something clicked for me, and I, I thought, uh, that I want to bring that up into class. So that's the tangent I'm getting off. Um, James didn't say a lot about the law, but Paul did. And there's often, there's often among uh, Bible students, some informed, maybe some not informed, they think there's a clash between Paul and James. 
Um, not so in, in the opinion of others, uh, but I want to start with something that Paul did write. So I want you to start by flipping over with me. We're not going to drill into this too deeply, but I want you to go to the Galatians. And when you think about Paul writing something about um, the law, and the law is not all his uh, readers thought it would be or should be, you think of either Romans or Galatians. And I, I picked a verse or a couple of verses in Galatians. Go to Galatians 3. In verse 19, and uh, this, uh, if you read the book of Galatians, and wow, Neil or Hiram one mentioned in a lesson a week or so ago that sometimes it's it's better to read uh, an entire book, uh, especially in the New Testament, uh, of a writer before you get the full flavor of what the writer is trying to say. I think that's true not only of James, but of Galatians, because if you go... In the Galatians, the whole first two and a half chapters or so uh, kind of builds up to what he says in Galatians 3.19. And I can't see my Bible very well, so somebody read Galatians 3.19 for me. 3.19. Who's got it? All right. So all the build up. And Paul gets to really what's his point. Sometime, may have been Phil Hartnady in, in this class said that for almost all of the, especially the New Testament books, really the, the whole Bible, um, there are three, four, six, eight, depending on the length and maybe the context, verses that are so crucial to the understanding of that particular book. And in the book of Galatians 3.19 is one of those verses, in my opinion, what purpose does the law serve? Well, some might think that's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to it. Or the people that were first reading this book of Galatians knew the answer to that or should have known the answer to that, and therefore it's a rhetorical question. Uh, but my reading tells me that um, I think these people that Paul is writing to uh, probably so misunderstand the law and the relationship of the law to Jesus that they didn't understand what purpose the law served. Well, just in case... Uh, Paul answers his own question four or five verses later. Verse 24, Galatians 3.24. Somebody else read that for me. Okay, therefore the law was our tutor. The law was our tutor. The law was our tutor. What does a tutor do? You teachers in, among us, what does a tutor do? Helps us what? Helps us learn. Yeah, helps us learn. Okay, the law was our tutor uh, to bring us to the point that Paul wants these people to be uh, at now, justified by faith. Again, those are two key verses. These false teachers that Paul is uh, dealing with here advocated salvation almost totally by works of the law, that is, the Mosaic law. Now, they were drilling in specifically on the law related to the Jewish rite of circumcision. Uh, but you know what? You start drilling in on that law, and you say, well, okay, we've got that one drilled down. There's another law in the Mosaic law. Let's drill on that one. Let's drill on that one. Pretty soon you're, you're focused entirely on the law of Moses uh, and having nothing to do uh, with um, uh, what this tutoring process should have accomplished. Paul explained, of course, that the law did not give eternal life. And if it did, if it did, if the law, if compliance with the law could give eternal life, then it uh, could impart righteousness and uh, there would be no purpose of faith in Jesus. It would be, in effect, opposed, which is uh, what Paul, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the rebuttal that Paul is throwing out there. The promise given to Abraham, uh, gee whiz, what was that, 400, 500 years before the law was given? And it was based on uh, faith. 
And uh, that faith is important to Paul. Okay, now flip over uh, something else Paul writes. Let's go over a few pages in your Bible. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 through 9. Let me get my Bible and my light and see if that helps me a little bit. Now Paul is again uh, still uh, drilling on uh, uh, some of the uh, same issues. Uh, Philippians 3 verses 7 through 9. But what things were gained to me... These I have counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith." So Paul is making that argument that righteousness comes by faith, not by the law. Okay, now, so you ask, Raj, how am I going to tie this into what James has to say? What does it have to do with James? So I want to dig a little deeper uh, before we tie that into James by asking you to stay with me a little bit longer as we turn even further back into the pages of yesteryear. Before Jesus came, and when everybody was under the law, there's no question to any Bible student that compliance with the law uh, was important. And there were instances of compliance with the law. But complete compliance just simply could not be achieved. That's a whole lesson right there. Um, But I want to look at a couple of uh, what I will uh, tell you, uh, I believe, are remarkable instances of complying with what God said through the great Moses. Uh, Anytime I read the Bible, there's a, it kind of jumps out the page at me. Anytime there's something repeated in the Bible, you know, a verse, and then two or three verses later, the same uh, verse or or phrase is there. Uh, To me, that's noteworthy. And uh, here's a case of that. Flip back over all the way back to Exodus. Now, this is what I was reading, I don't know, four or five days ago. I don't remember for sure. Uh, maybe a little farther back than that, but I was reminded of this. Exodus is one of those books that uh, if we've all read it, we know it's a little tedious to read. Uh, but if we've all read it multiple times, I think we realize that it gets a little easier to read the second time, the third time, and so forth. Uh, The flow seems to be a little bit better. And so here's something that jumps out to me. Exodus 39, verse 32. This is in the discussion of the rebuilding of the temple or the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Exodus 39, 32. And I I cut and pasted it into my paper, so I'm going to read that for you, but I want you to look at it. 39, 32. At the tail end of that verse, the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. The children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. If you read that section of Exodus, is it an understatement, an overstatement to say that some of the stuff and all of that building of the temple and everything associated with it, that's pretty tedious reading, is it not? Would you agree with me? Let me see some chins nodding. Yeah, it's pretty tedious reading. But think about this. 
Think about trying to do all of those things, whether you're the, one of the, uh, whether you're Aaron or one of his sons or not, or even the people. That is very, very tedious, but, but the people did that. Now, jump down to verse, just 10 verses later, 42 and 43. This is regarding the placement of the furnishings and the various implements, uh, in the tabernacle. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work, and indeed they had done it, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. Almost the same verse or the same phrase as uh, uh, ten verses earlier. They did it precisely as God said, precisely as God told Moses, and Moses told the people they did it. Go a little further, um, chapter 40, verse 16. The further arrangement of the tabernacle and uh, place or position of Aaron and his sons, approaching of it. Exodus 40:16. Thus Moses did... According to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Verse 19, the second half of verse 19 of chapter 40. Moses began the first tabernacle service as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then if you go on, scan down these with your eyes. Verses 23, 25, 27, 29, and 32 all have the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no hedging. Yes, but. Isn't this better? Let's do it this way. None of that happened. So I, I see all of this when I read Exodus. I see all of this that the people in some respects were at a very good position with God because they were doing what God had told Moses and they weren't hedging on anything. They were doing it precisely. Now, that's commendable. It's commendable, and I appreciate it very much. I view that favorably, and I think we all can, even though the details are many. And if you really look at the comparison of some of that tabernacle stuff and, and, and the sacrifice stuff, compare the complexity of that to what is asked of us. And all that stuff was physical. All that, Most of that stuff, at least, was physical. What's asked of us is things from the heart, which seems to me, at least conceptually, uh, should be easier to get our arms around. But the people did exactly as we were told. That didn't last. It didn't last. Now, to show why it didn't last, or a couple of really good and even well-known examples of why it didn't last, flip over to Joshua chapter 7 in the very first verse. And this is after uh, the people have been in the wilderness all that time and they began conquering the land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua 7 verse 1. This is after the conquering of Jericho, after the walls had fallen in Jericho. Joshua 7, verse 1, But the children of Israel committed a, a trespass. And then, then very specifically, Achan took of the accursed things at Jericho, um, and the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. The anger of the Lord burns against the children of Israel. Who committed the trespass? I want to hear an answer. Who committed the trespass? Achan. But what does the very first of that say? The children of Israel did what? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The children of Israel committed a sin. Wasn't it Achan that committed the sin? Well, the fact of the matter is that, yes, Achan is the, the, the actual person that committed the sin, but it affected the whole body of Israel. Let's remember that sometimes some of the things we do, some of the things we say, some of the things we don't do, can affect others just like Achan's transgression here became a transgression of Israel, a trespass of Israel. 
flip over just a page or two in your Bible uh, to, to 9.14. This is in the encounter with the Gibeonites. God had given a lot of specific instructions about what the people were supposed to do when they got to the promised land. And along come the Gibeonites kind of looking at the, the landscape here, and, and they, they, they say that mm, we don't have much of a chance here, so let's, um, let's throw the Israelites a curve, so to speak. And so deceitfully, uh, they come to the men of Israel. Verse 14 of Joshua 9 people of Israel did not ask counsel of the Lord before making this treaty with the Gibeonites. And that's in clear conflict uh, with uh, God's instructions to completely destroy the land. It's really two conflicts. God told the Israelites to completely destroy the land, no matter what body of people we're talking about. The Israelites, or, or, I'm sorry, the, the Canaanites in general, they're supposed to destroy them completely, annihilate them. Not only that, uh, but they were told earlier to seek counsel of God in circumstances similar to this. Uh, but they decided to march to their own drumbeat, and this treaty with the Gibeonites seemed like a good thing to do. So they said, you know, with respect to these people, with respect to this situation and this circumstance, this seems like a good thing. So rather than wiping these people out, we're going to make them treaty this treaty for, because it helps us. It helps us. We see that the benefit to us is perhaps better uh, than, than the circumstances of annihilating them completely. We know, that, of course, that Joshua didn't give, give any quarters to these people. He didn't fall into these traps himself. I will mention two examples from really the, the same context, uh, uh, the, the capturing of the, of the land of Canaan. Uh, first example was in the conquest of the Southland, Joshua 10.40. Joshua conquered all the land, and he left nothing remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Just a few verses later, Joshua eleven fifteen, with respect to the northern kingdom and the con- uh, conquest of what was referred to as the northern kingdom, a large part in the north of the land of Canaan, Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. No ifs, no ands, no buts. He did it at all. So we know from all of that, that it was not all peaches and cream. There, there were some good things, but there were some bad things as well. But really, here's something that I, always jumps out of the pages of me when I read um, in the Old Testament in the story of this time. Um, and you know the story as well as I do. This is some three or four hundred years later after the conquering of the land. Judges 17.6 and Judges 21-25. As you know, if you're a student of the Bible, the last five, I believe it is, chapters of the book of Judges are probably the most, what's the word, uh, horrendous, awful uh, discussion of God's people um, in, in the time of the Old Testament uh, that we can read. And, and uh, that, those verses, I, I believe the wording... In, in my Bible, I'm pretty sure the wording in, in my translation, Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25, is precisely the same. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, so, everybody's got a whole basket full of ifs, ands, and buts. 
Uh, it's not what God said. It's not what God said through Moses. It's not what God said through Joshua. Uh, it's not what the law said. Um, it's really what I think's right, what I want to do. Now, that brings me back to the New Testament time, and I'll ask myself again, what does that have to do with the book of James? And how am I going to wrap all this up and get it in the book of James? Well, I'll ask you um, in, in, as briefly as you can, uh, tell me what the overall theme of the book of James is. I know David's brought this out. What's the overall theme? Is it uh, the, the, the letter to James is considered to be what kind of guidance? What kind? Is it doctrinal? Is it doctrinal like, say, Galatians or Ephesians is? Well, no, it's practical guidance. It's practical guidance. And uh, that, that I don't think there's any commentary writer and probably not any good gospel preacher that, that would say all of the guidance in the book of James is practical. How to live from day to day. Now, he draws, he, James, draws a theological contrast between faith and works. There's no question about that. Look at James chapter, um, I believe it's chapter 2. And I'm going to cherry pick uh, uh, a couple of verses to read there. And again, James, like uh, uh, Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, it's almost always better to read the whole book. Now then, if you want to go back and and read uh, a specific chapter or section, uh, that's fine too. But in the whole context, we see this. So I'm going to cherry pick these verses, but I I don't want you to let me pull them out of context. I want you to look at the whole thing. James 2, verse 14. Um, well, let me start reading in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does this profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead." Skip a few verses, verse 24. James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And then verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without without works is dead also. That's sort of death defined. Uh, For the living, for the living, that's us. That's the definition of dead. If we claim we have faith, and there's not some works that are a natural extension of that measure of faith, uh, then it is as if we are dead. Uh, James makes that point. Now, to really get into what James said, and, and this is kind of an overview. So I don't want to steal any of David's thunder as he drills down into this, but I want to look at what I perceive as, uh, I'm going to call this three principal points that I, I see in James. Uh, I believe James is uh, uh, telling us that we need to be doing something, but he's also telling us the reason we need to be doing something is that our faith needs to be solid. We have to have solid faith, and Paul is very clear about that. There's no question about that. What James is saying, that if you really are a person of solid faith, then obedience in some respect is going to be a natural outcome of that, and that's what works is all about. That's, that's some outpouring or some example of our measure of, in, of obedience. Here's his first point now. If we haven't picked this up, if you've been here all 10 or 12 
weeks that uh, David has taught James, you've picked these things up. It's not new to me. Point number one in all of this is uh, I see James moving from point to point, and that's because that in our daily walk, in our living, there's all sorts of things that we encounter. And most of them, if not all of them, most of them, James is touching on in some respect or another. If not, if not touching on it directly, we can find that what we're doing, well, James said thus and so about this, and that's kind of similar to where I am right now, the circumstance I'm involved in right now. Uh, but he's kind of bouncing around a little bit. It's almost like reading Proverbs. Uh, sometimes when I read Proverbs, I, I, I almost get confused. It's one of those books that you really, really got to focus in. You know, you might find here uh, the, the writer is saying something in Proverbs, and two and a half chapters later, that subject comes up again, but for only for one verse. Three chapters later, uh, the subject comes up again. It's like kind of bouncing around a little bit. And I see James kind of doing that a little bit. Maybe not as much as the Proverbs writer, but he bounces around a little bit in a manner similar to the proverb writer. Now, here's some of the things he talks about. And you know these, and I, I tried to list them in the order that I think they're covered in the first four chapters, and I probably missed something. But he talks about trials, the day-to-day trials that we encounter. He talks about a correct hearing of God's Word. He talks about avoiding any hint toward favoritism. He talks about controlling the tongue. He talks about the correct use or view of one's will. He talks about the need to choose humility over pride. He talks about request, uh, prayer requests. He says something very important about not being judgmental. And then he gives us, in the last uh, three or four verses of chapter 4, he gives us some um, hints about our travel plans, if you will, our plans for tomorrow. Point number two in all this. Um, the more I read James... Uh, the more I think uh, that very clearly that some of it is rebuke and some of it is exhortation. And maybe that's uh, intended on James's part, and maybe it's intended on my part. Maybe I need to be rebuked in some of the things that James is talking about, and maybe I do some of these things reasonably well, and I need a little exhortation, maybe to encourage me a little bit more. It's a whole series of moral warnings, how to live morally day to day, week to week, Uh, James clearly connects all of these, maybe loosely at times, but it seems like at times James is standing on the rooftops and he says, good grief, people, don't you understand this? And then sometimes it seems like he's coming up behind us and patting us on the back and he's saying, that was good, that was good, keep up that good work. Sometimes a little rebuke, sometimes a great encouragement. I conclude, in point three, I conclude from all that James said uh, that, um, you know, the Israelites uh, picked and chose at times, picked and chose at times, uh, and it um, placed them in a precarious position. Almost always, almost always in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm sure some of you scholars could shut me down on this or shoot me down on this, but it seems like that every time uh, they, they began to... Uh, walking their, their own paths, not the paths God had charted out for them. Uh, God uh, caused uh, some obstacle to appear before them so that they would learn their dependence upon God um, over and over again, and not just in the periods of captivity, but over and over again, they found out that 
disobedience to what God had said through Moses, through Joshua, uh, through others, placed them in a precarious position. The lesson for us today is let's don't get ourselves individually and personally in a precarious position as Achan did. And also, let's don't do something that, uh, like Achan again, places God's people in a precarious uh, position. We're living under the law of liberty. Certainly, James is, is, is saying there is some personal responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Good points, Chuck. Good, good points. Uh, I, I think uh, that, that I would say in response to what Chuck said, uh, seems to me we're in a more preferred position. I've got direct access to God through Jesus, uh, whereas uh, Achan and the people of Achan's time... Uh, any place. Nobody could do it perfectly. Nobody could do it nearly perfectly consistently. There was no consistency and there certainly was no perfection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the times were hard for them, uh, and in some respects they're, they're easier for us. Look at me at, uh, in the time we got left. I want to look at um, what I'll call seven ideas, um, uh, and I've, I guess, summarized all these. Selected ideas, seven selected ideas that James presents that uh, tells me, collectively, we've got to obey God. Uh, and I'm going to start with chapter 1 and weave through from chapter 1. He says, we can triumph in any time of trouble. God wants His people to overcome our trials, our temptations. He wants us to live in obedience to His commandments. We've got to develop perseverance. We've got to take, as Chuck says, personal responsibility. We've got to accept that responsibility for our failures and overcome them. And I see uh, the way of doing that, um, and I believe James is t- trying to tell us that. We study, we pray. We study, we pray. My five-year-old grandson would say, hey, that's a pattern. Study, pray. Study, pray. And I think that's what we need to do. Study and pray. You can't do enough of either. Um, number two from James 1, it's not a good thing to hear without listening. This is a warning against pretending uh, to be uh, what we're not. Instead of listening and hearing what we're not, it's a warning against deceiving instead of obeying. It's a warning against talking instead of serving. Christians have to overcome those things. If we're committed believers, we demonstrate our obedience with acts of compassion. Uh, there was a song years ago, Ronnie Millsap, 99 and 44, 100% pure love. Everybody remember that song? Uh, is it acceptable for me to be 99 and 44, 100% obedient? Uh, I depend upon, like you do, the grace of God. Paul is uh, clear about that, uh, faith through grace. Uh, but I do need to try to perfect that. Uh, partiality in any form is rebuked. That's James chapter 2. I remember a time years ago, 20 years ago or longer, uh, when I was in an assembly of God's people on the Sunday before a Tuesday election day, and a well-known politician was uh, having a difficult time, and an elder in the church, a friend of this politician, brought this individual into the church, and at the end of the church introduced her, by the way, uh, this person is here today. First time that person had ever, as far as I know, been in the assembly, uh, certainly uh, assembly that I'd been in, and the last time, 
Uh, and to me, that was nothing but showing favor to a political person as a guest in worship during a campaign season. And it, uh, it bothered me then. It would bother me even more now. Uh, we can't show favoritism. James does offer that contrast between faith and works that we looked at a little earlier. An intellectual acceptance of God is good, it's commendable, but it falls short of what's expected of us. And James um, explains that. I did a little uh, reading about the contrast, conflict, some would call it, between Paul and James, uh, faith versus works. Uh, and um, I, I guess I schooled myself a little bit uh, on that. Um, I, I don't see any evidence of, of this being a, a conflict in, in my judgment. Now, I, I'm perplexed, though, because smart people over the years have seen that there is a conflict there. Conflict there. Uh, Martin Luther even considered the letter of James it didn't belong in the New Testament canon. It was an egregious conflict with what Paul said. If it's that much of a conflict, it doesn't belong in the New Testament. He said, take it out. He called the book of James, the letter of James, a letter of straw. Uh, Paul wrote to a different audience than James did. Um, people were denying salvation by grace through faith. and He rebutted that instance, and he said, um, keeping the commandments of the Mosaic law, um, you're, you're putting too much focus on that. It shouldn't be focused at all. James wrote to folks that had a distorted view of salvation by grace. If it's genuine faith, there's going to be some outflowing uh, of works. They fought entirely different audiences. And so enough said about that. Uh, that's a lesson or lessons overall. Now, we know in a couple, three minutes we got left, uh, uh, let me mention two, two other things. Uh, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3 is that long discussion about the tongue, powerful influence of the tongue, and teachers are held more accountable which is always a sobering. Uh, self-centered living finds no favor with God, and it even stifles our prayers. It displeases God. It demands repentance, uh, and it uh, can produce slander. Tomorrow is uncertain. That's James 4, the last uh, four or five verses, I believe. Uh, we learn from that presumptuous judgments just aren't, um, aren't uh, to be made. And we can't presume to know about tomorrow. And then that critical verse, I believe it's the last verse of James chapter 4. Let's go back to my math lessons again. Knowing something good should be done and not doing it equals sin. Uh, One of our good brothers, sometimes in the the, um, periodic prayers that that we hear, the public prayers, is very clear about um, reminding us that there are sins of omission, the things that we uh, foolishly do that are wrong, and then there are things that we see that need to be done and we just ignore them. We just don't do them. Um, and we do need to be reminded of that. Well, that, was that the second bell, by the way, you bell hearers? Was that the first one? Okay. Uh, now, uh, I don't want to dwell on this because these are things that, that we've all talked about. Um, uh, if you flow through the entire book of James... Ask for wisdom, never doubt, remain steadfast, even with trial. Think of all these, you English people, as you go through this, all of these uh, verses through here, almost always we're using, uh, what, what do we call, need to help me out here, what, what's an action verb, what's that called, uh, intransitive verb, transitive verb, is that right? Does anybody remember? It's action verbs, anyhow, it's action verbs. It's things that 
it was like James was snapping his fingers and he, he said, ask for wisdom, don't doubt, remain steadfast, be quick to hear, put away filthiness, be doers of the word, not hearers alone, bridle your tongue, don't show partiality, speak and act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. Uh, that's James uh, 2.12. Faith apart from works is dead. We ought not to curse people that are made in the likeness of God. Uh, friendship with the world is enmity toward God. That's uh, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. And, and the one that we all know, the verse we can almost always quote, the verse about submitting to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Don't speak evil to one another, and then knowing the right thing to do and not doing it, that, that's a sin. Now, uh, to wrap this up, I, I want to ask myself this. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm looking back at the Israelites um, back, um, what, uh, 2,500 years ago or, or further back. And uh, I'm looking at uh, the people at the time of Joshua and the, and the time of the judges. Uh, and I'm looking at what was written by them. Uh, and, and, and nobody is writing uh, inspired by God a history of the church today. Uh, but is there some, there are some recordings of what the church is doing to some writers today. They're not inspired, of course. But I, what I'm wondering is, if we get two or three hundred years down the road and our Lord hasn't returned to earth, is somebody going to say about us, is somebody going to say about us that the folks that lived in 2022, the church in Bowling Green, Kentucky, did all the work, and indeed they lived daily, as James pointed out in his letter, just so they did it. You know, the Israelites couldn't obey the Lord's commandments fully. They couldn't obey them consistently. They couldn't obey them very well. And at the time of Paul, at the time of James, um, things weren't much different, except, except we had the introduction of the Son of God uh, that makes eternal life possible for us. And we have um, great measure of thanksgiving to offer to James. Uh, our faith and God's grace is greater than all our sin. There's a good song about that that I won't sing for you, uh, and you're thankful of that. Um, but Jesus has commissioned us to do certain things. And James give us, gives us practical guidance on how to go about doing that, even if that's not our calling, even if we're not a Hiram or a Neil, we have some responsibilities about how to live from day to day. And James has landed all out for us. Uh, let's uh, pick up the guard and do what he's asked. Thank you for your attention. Uh, as far as I know, David will wrap up James next week.